Okay, so there's a few things going on, right? This week we did a few shows with Dr. Vinay Prasad, who's one of my favorite guests because he's off the rails. He talks fast enough for me to understand, although a lot of people have to play him back at half speed. Um, very smart guy, hematologist, oncologist at UCSF, studies like his field of expertise that he's written books on, including um, Ending Medical Reversal and Malignant, is how medical evidence is used correctly, how you design clinical trials and use that evidence to actually take care of patients. And it turns out it's not as simple as you think, which is why we did the show on ivermectin looking at the data so far. And Vinay and I have concluded based on the data set that, oh, it could very well be promising. It could also not work at all. And you just can't tell without better quality studies, which are underway, right? So if you wanna use ivermectin now, that's your call, but I don't think you can publicly recommend a drug without a decent quality of evidence. And Vinay and I sort of hashed this out in our video. So that's one thing we talked about, but in that episode, we also talked about how the, the issues that the ivermectin gang bring up, which are institutional regulatory capture. What does that mean? That means that uh, regulatory bodies like the FDA are significantly controlled by the very entities they are regulating. So in other words, if a pharmaceutical um, company uh, over years has effectively influenced FDA so much that they're effectively in pharma's pocket to some degree. Now you would say, well, how can that be? It's an independent government agency and all that. Well, the truth is just look at the other drug we talked about, aducanumab or aduhelm. I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. You would think with pharma's billions, they could name their drugs simply for the public, especially when they do direct to consumer advertising, uh, which is completely unethical by the way. And we're like one of only two countries in the world that do that. I think it's New Zealand and us. So long story short, aducanumab for Alzheimer's, it's an infusion, costs about $56,000 a year, had a couple big randomized trials run by the companies, didn't show much. They then went back, and in fact, they were stopped for futility, according to um, Vinay, who kind of went through this in the show that we did. And yet, then a year later or something, they went back and re-sliced the data and said, well, actually at the higher dose with this kind of thing, there were less amyloid plaques and maybe some benefits. So that was enough to get FDA to approve it for anyone with Alzheimer's, which is about 6 million people, which would cost something like 112 or $116 billion to treat all those people, right? And Vinay's point was, well, looking at the data and the quality of the data, the drug has no clear evidence that it works. So what's basically happening is pharma is giving you a bag of sugar water, a very expensive placebo, and it's not a medicine, it's a financial instrument designed to take money from middle-class and poor taxpayers and shunt it through Medicare to the pharmaceutical company and its shareholders. So it's a kind of modern feudalism where you're, you know, the serfs are doing all the labor, generating the wealth, and the feudal overlords, the pharmaceutical company, are reaping the benefits through the government, which is the administrator of this. So people who think that, you know, who are who question, like, well, okay, should, do we need like another booster for this vaccine, a third booster, according to Borla from Pfizer? People who question, well, you know, is ivermectin and these kind of research, are they being suppressed and so on and so on? They're not wrong to question this. In fact, they're right to question it because 
this idea of regulatory capture is absolutely real. And if you need an example of it, so now the FDA's commissioner, Woodcock, actually has asked the office of the inspector general to investigate her own staff. That was the last news about their dealings with Biogen, the company that makes aducanumab prior to approval. And I think they walked back the approval a little bit too. So, so again, our faith in these institutions that are supposed to be, like before the pandemic, people would have been like uh, CDC, I mean, except for like really anti-vax people, they would have been like CDC, sure, whatever they say, I mean, this is what they do. And now everyone's like, wait, what? In fact, the large, you know, one of the largest nursing unions in the country questioned CDC's decision publicly to say that vaccinated people don't need to wear masks anymore. Like that's how little faith we have in our institutions that another medical institution, by the way, I think they were wrong to do that, but because I don't think masks are necessary with vaccines, but you know, it, it, get, it gets you to this whole idea that, that there's so much mistrust, you can't even find what they call an epistemic commons, a, a, a common source of truth anymore in the world, like because it's so fragmented and there's so little faith in people acting in good faith, you know? So, you know, everyone's like, well, yeah, you, you know, you should debate this guy in ivermectin and you should do that. And it's like, nobody's gonna behave like they're behaving in good faith. Everybody's biased and everybody's playing to their own audience. So there's something called audience capture among like YouTube people. So like, you know, Brett Weinstein, myself, you look at Michaela Peterson. I've been on these shows, David Fuller's show, Rebel, Rebel Wisdom. Anytime I go on like say, Rebel Wisdom or Michaela Peterson's show, if you look at the comments, their audience absolutely hates me. Like they despise everything I stand for because they maybe watched a video where I said, hey, this guy, Gert Vandenbush is full of shit and here's the reasons why, right? About vaccines or uh, Plandemic is the stupidest thing I've ever heard and here's why, right? So of course my audience loves that stuff because we're that, that, that's who my audience is, right? They're rationalists and they look at the data and so on, but they have their own biases, right? They have their own biases. And so if I go on those shows, which I have, the comment section lights up with hate because, and, and there's something called audience capture. So it means, you know, why would a David Fuller or a Michaela Peterson even wanna have me on if they know their audience is just gonna give them so much crap? Now, the truth is they did it because they don't care. They're actually looking for discussion and truth and engagement. And even if it's controversial, they want that, right? But others are not gonna do that, right? And, and, and one of the arguments for that, uh, historically, like let's say, okay, let, let's think about, you know, um, let's give a good example here. Like this Gert Vandenbush, a guy who was saying basically that this vaccine is gonna kill us all eventually <clears throat> by generating resistant mutants that, and so on and so forth. And I, I did a video where I said, these are the reasons why he's just not right, right? And then I threw in a little entertainment value, which was made fun of his, you know, the fact that his accent is so sophisticated European that people just wanna believe him, right? So these kind of things were called ad hominems by the audience that hates me. I call them entertainment. It doesn't matter what you call it. But the point is, would I ever put him on my show? Because he was like, come on, debate me right now. Let's, do, let's put, put me on the show. And I said, no, because you have a platform. It's called the internet. You're getting millions of views. Why would I give you my platform when I fundamentally disagree with you? Now, the thing is, if he were someone that we disagreed on science and we could have a conversation, then you would actually have him on and you would debate and you would do all that because that's called scientific discourse. But what's, what's happened now is, 
It used to be you'd look at people like that and you go, okay, he's a fringe element in this discussion. He has his platform. I'm not gonna give him mainstream attention if I'm a mainstream media company because that's something called false equivalence. You don't give like Jenny McCarthy the same coverage as you know a pediatrician who treats, treats kids who've suffered from measles because they weren't vaccinated, something like that, right? Because there's sort of, there's some issues where there just isn't, it isn't equivalent scientifically. And so the old school media approach is to say, we don't do false equivalents, so we're not gonna give them a platform and so on. And a lot of internet people, including myself, used to agree with that. We'd say, well, yeah, this, this is false equivalence. Why give them a, a, a platform to spew nonsense? I'll just say the stuff is nonsense and we'll move on. But now that doesn't work because a Gert Vandenbush can go to Brett Weinstein, he can go to Joe Rogan, he can go to um, a lot of different platforms within the intellectual dark web and without, and have an even bigger voice unopposed. Because of audience capture, like Rogan and these guys, they know, they're, they're not even gonna challenge him. He's gonna come on and say, you know, this thing could kill us all, and here's what pharma's doing, and here's what's happening, and so on. And I'm, I'm just using him as an example, and we don't need to get too granular about what he's saying. It's just, you could you substitute Robert Malone, or substitute Pierre Corey, or substitute any of these guys. Um, and they're gonna be completely unchallenged. So when Brett Weinstein interviews, you know, Pierre Corey, and I've seen these interviews, or these Malone, the Malone guy and these other guys, there's really very little challenge to what they're saying, right? It's not a journalistic endeavor, it's an audience capture endeavor. It's like the guy already agrees with you, he's gonna get your message out to the public. I do this as well with my with my guests. When I interview Vinay Prasad, I'm not challenging him on a lot of things because I agree with him on a lot of things. I think his viewpoint's important and I'm trying to get it out there. But the question then is, how do you actually solve this problem of having discourse and debate that isn't, that's done in good faith, you know? So we almost need like a third estate, like a, a, a different place where, you know, there's a very smart arbiter who's kind of helping mediate and it's all done in good faith and the ideas actually get hashed out more and the public can watch, right? But such a thing doesn't really exist right now. It really doesn't because everybody's so tribalized and it's very hard to get views on a YouTube or a Facebook doing that. It's much easier to go full tribal, much, much, much easier. In fact, when you know when Brett Weinstein or myself come out and say, and by the way, I have a lot of respect for Brett, so I, you know, that's why I bring him up in the context of this because it's like we're kind of in this space where we're we're trying to teach people stuff, we're trying to give like heterodox ideas that aren't in the mainstream and how do you even parse where the truth is and 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 so on and and what's good faith and what isn't. So the 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 um Long story short is, you know, it it is very easy to come out and say, oh, YouTube censored me and demonetized me. And in a way, that's a kind of megaphone in itself. It's saying, hey, look guys, this is what they don't want you to know. And that's happened to me. Like Facebook has, has demonetized lots of my videos because I even opened my mouth about vaccines, pro or con, or, you know, I'm debunking somebody else and it says, oh, this is misinformation and puts a link on it because the algorithms are stupid, right? Um, and even the non in the human algorithms are biased. Right, who's the arbiter of truth here? Facebook, YouTube? It, they cannot be. They cannot be the arbiters of truth because they don't know what truth is. <laughs> no, nobody really does, right? So you have to allow discourse. Now, there are some things that I think you could argue that are so damaging that I think that the, 
the mainstream thought on that just needs to dogpile on them, right? And make their own videos, just dogpile on them. But don't, don't, don't censor them because all that's gonna do is give them the megaphone of censorship and they're gonna reach even more people because there are plenty of ways to monetize a show that aren't direct advertising via YouTube and stuff, right? So, and there, there are people on, on, on online who, will, who teach courses on how to make money this way. So that's not gonna stop people from you know, capitalizing on this, on their audience capture, on, on playing to their own audience. Um, so that was something I, I didn't intend to talk about, but that's how these live things are. Let's, let's look at some comments. Um, Gert Vandenberg, <laughs> good name on YouTube. Engaging AIDS denialists in South Africa seems to have given them more credibility in the early 2000s. It's a great, it's a great point. So Peter Duesbergs and these other guys, you know, they were saying, oh, AIDS is, is, is caused by the drugs we use to treat AIDS. It's caused by having gay sex. It's like all these other things is not caused by HIV. So this was a thing in the early 90s. And then in the 2000s, there was, there was this movement of kind of AIDS denialism. And this is where this idea of false equivalence, like how, okay, like when Vinay and I had the conversation about ivermectin and aducananab, the Alzheimer's drug from Biogen, you know, we went through like, okay, this is how you scientifically kind of think through data and why there's bias and why that, you know, that this is so on and so forth. But the average public cannot do that without education and training and so on. They just can't. So they go with appeals to emotion. They are, they fall victim to logical fallacies that these people are purporting and so on. So when you give another viewpoint equal sort of airtime on a mainstream platform to the more consensus viewpoint, and remember the consensus is, is often wrong, but the fringe is not often right. This is an important distinction, by the way. The consensus can often be wrong, but the fringe is very rarely right. There may be a grain of truth in there somewhere, but like I can tell you right now what these guys Malone and, and these guys are saying about the, the spike protein and toxicity, and there's gonna be this just huge amount of toxicity and, and they keep moving the goalposts. So, it, oh, it didn't happen like we said it would immediately or in the few weeks because we're not seeing it anywhere, right? I mean, I, hundreds of thousands of medical professionals message me and I don't hear any of this, right? Like, and they would tell me, believe me, if they're seeing this stuff. Uh, so they move the goalposts. They say, well, okay, 10 years from now, everyone's gonna get cancer. Okay, okay, dude, come on. But giving them an equal platform means that people are much more likely to be influenced by them thinking that their credentials are real. Now there's a thing called appeal to authority, which is a logical fallacy, but it, it's really, it's really a, an appeal to a false authority. So you get some guy who maybe has some virology credentials, you know, like, like Van den Bosch, and you elevate him to the equivalence of hundreds of people with credentials like his or better. Right, and one and one thing we we really can't. It's interesting. There's an elitism component and a um, a sort of valuing elite education component that's very common in this space. I'm guilty of it occasionally. I'm definitely guilty of it offline. Uh, but but I try to avoid that expressing that bias. Uh, you know, on video, but but I can say this: like, you know, the kind of characters who come out of the woodwork talking about this stuff, right? Have not often trained or are affiliated with the best and the brightest. And no one will say that overtly, but this is what people in the scientific community say to each other at parties. When they go, oh, look what this guy's saying. Dude, where'd he train? Jesus Christ. I mean, and that that's kind of how 
the bias is, right? So I'll put that out there, that that happens, and I'm not making a value judgment on whether it's correct or not, but it does happen. Um, let's look at some comments here. Um, Jenny Finn on YouTube says, any group that feels marginalized by formal medicine is likely to give credence to fringe viewpoints because they're seeking someone who will listen. That won't change. Oh my God, Jenny. You guys on you guys are crushing it on the comments. Thank you. Both those last comments were amazing. All right. Yes. I did a show with Britt Hermes, who was a naturopath. Um, and the reason she became a naturopath, and then she fell out of she just was like got very disillusioned with it and now is this very pro-science kind of activist. She had a terrible experience with mainstream medicine when she was a young teen. A dermatologist treated her like crap. She had this horrible skin condition, et cetera. And the way they treated her was so terrible that she was sort of pushed to go to the library and dig up alternative treatment regimens. And she found all this like kind of community of people that spoke like she did, that felt that were suffering, that were mistreated by the mainstream, that looked at the kind of regulatory capture that's going on with the Alzheimer's drug, that looked at, you know, the way freaking Pfizer is is coming out and and without even talking to regulators, without even talking to government officials, they came out and said, we're gonna seek FDA approval for a third booster shot because you know the immunity appears to be waning. Five minutes prior, they were like, the immunity's strong at, at whatever. Tell me that that isn't, tell me that they're not, I'm sure they have some data that they can fudge and they can massage and say, oh, look, you know, it's a little less effective against Delta at eight months. So maybe we need another booster at 10 months because what's that gonna do? You know, they're not even thinking about the bottom line. They just have intuited it because that's unconsciously how they're biased. It's not like these are evil people. That's just how they're going to be working in a pharmaceutical company where you're beholden to your shareholders. You're not beholden to patients. You're not beholden to government. You're not beholden to regulators. You're beholden to the shareholders. That's your fiduciary responsibility. They're designed to do that. And we've allowed that because that's how we function in America. That's how corporate America has been determined. We're gonna let them function this way, right? So of course, people are gonna look at that shit and go, no. And they're gonna, they're gonna pull on to these more fringe viewpoints. Now, when I say fringe, I fucking mean fringe. This is, people don't realize, all right? They don't, they don't realize, if, you, if you've gone through all the training and all the other stuff, and you can say, oh, it's conditioning and all this. Yeah, it's also knowledge. It's also learning. It's also experience. It's also taking care of patients. It's also doing all this stuff. When you go through all that, and then you see one of these guys come out, like I can watch one of those videos. My colleagues can watch one of those videos. And within five seconds, our bullshit meter goes through the roof. We go, oh, we've seen this all before. It's this type of person. They're, they're using these fa sort of fallacious thinking. They're appealing to this sort of emotion in people. And they're, 95% likely to be wrong. And the 5% likelihood where they're correct is like a little gem you can pull out and go, oh, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. We should probably keep our eye on that or think about that or you know, at least worry a little bit more about that, right? That's, that's how it's done. But the, the poor suffering person who's been fucked by our system, right? Because our system is bullshit. Uh, who, who are they gonna turn to? They're gonna turn to people who feel like they do, who speak to their core concerns and fears, who use enough scientific language that they are convinced that, okay, this person's legitimate. They can't know that because they don't have the tool set to do that. 
because they do something else in life, right? They're not spending all their time looking at clinical trials and all that. Very few people are. And the people who do will speak up and then they get shouted down as being pharma shills. Like, do you think Vinay Prasad is a pharma shill? The guy's written books about how pharma is fucking us on cancer drugs. Do you think he's a pharma shill? Come on. Um, I don't know. Kathy Bitch, 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 is she? Uh, Bishka on uh, Facebook says, maybe they are evil. Listen, I, I, I think one of our big problems though is that we can't have a discourse with people that we think are evil because that's just not a discourse you have. So the minute you start calling people evil, you can, you're, you're done. You've already, you might as well just say this, you've lost any argument the minute you assume or call someone evil. I don't assume any of these people are evil, including the more you know fringe delusional aspect of the anti-vax activist community. I don't think they're evil. I just think they're deluded, <laughs> right? I really do. Um, you know, like I don't think Robert F. Kennedy is evil. I just, I, in fact, I have no idea what his motives are. I can't know that. I just know that what he's saying is not correct based on everything I understand. No, meaning the bet, my best understanding at this point, my you know crude Bayesian analysis of all this is that he's way wrong about anything he says about vaccines with the exception of, yes, we should watch for safety signals and yes, vaccines aren't 100% safe. We've been saying that, you know, this, this kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, if we, if we operated from that presumption that the minute you call someone evil or, you know, refer to Nazis or, you know, assume, you know, evilness, the minute you do that, you've lost the argument. Well, then maybe we should stop doing that, right? Because then we can actually have reasonable conversations with people instead of, instead of the, ho the horse shit that we're doing. Um, Lisa Willis on Facebook, spot on Z-Dog. I went down that road briefly after a scare with Zoloft while being pregnant, decided to stop using even though the doctor said it was safe. So it's interesting, Lisa, that you bring up Zoloft and the psychiatric drugs. These are, so in the psychiatric community, these are very good physicians and, and, and uh, others that, are, that deploy these medications to help people who are suffering. However, you could make the argument that the people who are suffering are in some ways made worse by over-medicalization. In fact, I think there's a strong argument to be made about that. And so a lot of people will turn to, you know, they'll go off their meds, they feel numb and sedated. We just have these blunt instruments, right? We don't um, actually address any root causes of mental illness in terms of societal causes, stressors, we don't give people the tools, you know, we talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy and, you know, um, um, all this other, these very time intensive, work intensive therapies that work. We talk about them, but we don't properly reimburse for them. We don't focus on them. We don't tr really train well for them. So we get what we get, which is a bunch of meds thrown at people. And then when they don't work, people understandably rebel and look for other things. It's very easy, man. It's very easy to fall down these rabbit holes. You know, and there's crazy, there's so much crazy stuff in medicine, you guys, that we do that does not work that generates a shit ton of revenue, right? Like, for example, Mona Lisa Touch. It's this intravaginal laser treatment that's supposed to help with like sexual dysfunction and 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 um, you know, incontinence and things like that that many uh postmenopausal and post 
postpartum women may suffer from. And so women are desperate for relief from these afflictions. And so they will sign up for vaginal laser resurfacing with this thing. And even the FDA had to come out and say, this is horse shit. It can actually cause harm. It's making these providers tons of money. So they're gonna convince themselves that they're doing good for patients. They're not bad people. They're just, they, of course they're gonna go, well, the, the, the rep for this device says it's transformative and my patients feel better after I do it. And so therefore, it must work. This is a, a huge fallacy, by the way. You don't think you have a huge therapeutic placebo effect by doing something invasive to people? I mean, they've done some of these studies on like knee replacement versus sham surgery where they open up the knee, but they don't do anything. <laughs> There's relief in both cases. We're, you know, these incredibly complicated, like if you think this is a physical thing, and that you can just manipulate like icons on a desktop, you're wrong. You don't understand medicine at all. And that's why we've hit a wall, right? Most of the therapeutics we try don't fucking work. That's what Vinay pointed out in the show. You throw a lot of shit against the wall and see if it sticks and it doesn't work. But I'll tell you, sitting with someone, holding their hand, forming a therapeutic alliance, that's what naturopaths do. That's what chiropractors do. Why can't, fucking Western docs do that. It's not rocket science, but it is, because it's actually hard. It's hard for people who aren't trained, who are selected for their psychopathic tendencies, a lot of us. And then we wonder why our patients run into the arms of the alternative fringe. <sighs> Lhasa International, thank you for the super chat on YouTube. Dr. Z keeping you, brother. When you need a good vacation, give us a buzz on the island. All the organic bananas and mangoes you can eat. I love it. I love it. We're going to be in Maui soon, so I'll be broadcasting from there, so at least we'll have some island action. Um, Goodwin's Law, says Jim, on who's a supporter on Facebook, short for Goodwin's, Goodwin's Rule, Godwin's Rule, Godwin, sorry, of Nazi analogies is an internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, regardless of topic or scope, the probability of comparison involving Nazis or Adolf Hitler becomes more likely. Yep. There's a guy on, um, there's a guy on Twitter, he's a doctor who has been posting for years about different stories about how he has been forced to do chest compressions on patients who have clear neo-Nazi tattoos. And every time he tells a story, it's like a new story. But then you go back in Twitter and it's like he's told the same story like with a slightly different spin at different levels of his career. This happened to me as a med student. Then this happened to me as a resident. Then this happened to me as an ER attending. And this happened. And so it's kind of like people like to invoke the Nazi thing to advance whatever agenda they have, whether it's true or not. So you've already lost the conversation the minute you mention Nazis. Um, let me see. There's other things I wanted to talk about here uh, before I run out of time. So um, masking. So in... In California, uh, and, and I want you to watch Vinay's show with me about masking in kids. There's not great data that masking helps young kids. The two largest organizations, the WHO and the CDC that are public on this, disagree. Like WHO's like, don't mask kids under five. CDC's like, mask everyone two and above. The For vaccinated people, CDC has said you don't need to um, mask, but the California policy is gonna be, no, you need to mask whether you're vaccinated or not in school for kids. 
even for kids who are vaccinated. And the question is, look, if, if masks are a completely low risk intervention, then who cares? Just precautionary principle, whatever. But it's not. We haven't measured, in fact, what the risk is in terms of language development, in terms of do you actually make things worse by putting a five-year-old in a mask who's boogery and shitty and, you know, we just don't know. And his point is we had a whole pandemic to study it and we haven't. And so masks now are a tribal virtue signaling apparatus. And I'll tell you why I think this, apart from the fact that, you know, and, and by the way, I, I think masks were helpful at, at stages in the pandemics for adults. I think they're probably helpful for teachers who are, for anyone who's unvaccinated, um, assuming there's still circulating coronavirus, which there is, Delta variant. Um, I think surgical masks are better than cloth masks. Uh, and I think they operate on Monica Gandhi's principle, which is lowering inoculum. They don't prevent all inhalation of, of uh, they just reduce the amount of particles that you inhale. So that being said, I am against mask mandates, especially now. I think people can be trusted to do, and if, and if they don't, if they're not comfortable, then you know just don't go, You know, there's many other alternative things you can do, right? And individual businesses should have the right to say, you need a mask or you don't need a mask based on their own policies. So now in California, we don't have mask mandates, and yet 90, Five to 98, I would say 98% of people I see in the Bay Area, in stores and et, et cetera, where I go are wearing masks. Now this is odd because roughly 70% of the population here is vaccinated. So it's not that they're unvaccinated. And I'm the only one in many times in a big retail store not wearing a mask because guess what? I don't like to virtue signal. I like to actually do science. And a mask, I'm double vaccinated with, the, with Moderna there's very little circulating disease. These are well-ventilated places. Why the fuck would I wear a mask except, oh, I want someone else to feel safe. They should feel safe if they get vaccinated. If we're doing that shitty a job of teaching people that the vaccines are the answer to feeling safe, if you want to feel safe. If you don't care, then who cares? Don't get vaccinated, who cares, right? If we've done that bad a job, why the fuck are we virtue signaling with masks? like? If, if, you, if you're still wearing a mask and you haven't gotten vaccinated, we failed as an educational entity, right? If you don't wear a mask and you haven't gotten vaccinated, then you're just saying, I don't think this disease is a big deal for me. I've made the risk benefit calculation or I've had COVID and I think I'm immune. And all, look, all that's fine. That's all reasonable. But if you're operating from a mistaken premise, that means that public health officials have fucked up, which we know they have. I mean, the whole apparatus is terrible. And, and that, that, that actually brings me, oh, thank you for the stars, Julia Blair says, thank you for the logical conversation. I'm not sure how much of his logic and how much is his emotion, Julia, at this point. Um, okay, so this, this relates to something fucking hilarious that I saw. I'm sorry, I just start cursing when I get in a flow state. The, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a rap thing done by Juvenile for a black online dating service. And you can Google it on, on YouTube and it's got two and a half million views and it's called Vax That Thang Up. And it's a parody of Back That Ass Up. I don't know if it's a parody, it's a remix of it, right? Because the, the backing track's different and all that. And uh, it's the corniest fucking most ridiculous thing. And you can tell, you know, they're targeting African-Americans, obviously, it's juvenile doing it. And it's a black dating app. And they're saying shit like, you know, if you want, the rhymes were like, if you want to slam with a guy named Scott, 
go, 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 get the shot. You know, like if you wanna have sex, go get the shot kind of thing. And so on the Joe Button, Button podcast, he fucking, it was, you gotta see the response to it. It is hilarious. Like three black dudes watching this, rappers going, you know, I got the vaccine. If I'd seen this fucking thing, I would have assumed white people paid for it, pharma funded it, and it's and they took one of like like the dopest party jams from the 2000s and fucking raped it. I mean, so I don't know what they were thinking, but I'll let you decide, go check it out, but it's pretty funny. The lyrics are so bad. Uh, <laughs> you, got, you, got, you just gotta check it out. Actually, I gotta pull up. Here's here's another couple lyrics from that thing. It it was just it was tremendous. Hold on. Okay, so if you want to smash some dude named Scott, go 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 get the shot. And then if you want to get sticky and hot, go 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 get the shot. Wow. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Back that ass up, Robert Simpson. Jesus, how cringy, Magnan Imus. And the video is like. Chicks twerking with face shields on. <laughs> now, Deborah Power, here's a good good comment. We're pretty concerned about our truly immune compromised uh, patients. Need some data that vaccine works in B cell depleted patients. Deborah, I think it's fair to assume that it that it doesn't. I think in people with severe like immune compromised transplant patients, etc., you can, you should get vaccinated, but then just assume that it's not enough. That's the thing, like, why do we have to think there's a black and white, like wear a mask, don't wear a mask? Everybody's different, everybody's got different reasons. Everybody's doing the best they can with what they have. So if you're a transplant, post-transplant patient or B-cell depleted, whatever it is, whatever your situation is, and you feel that those vaccines are not enough, wear a mask. In fact, don't just wear a mask. If you wanna wear an N95 mask, I ain't hating, cause that's the gold standard. That's what I'd want in the hospital if I'm taking care of those patients. So. You know, I, I, there's really nothing wrong, especially when you have a more contagious variance like Delta, which they love to fearmonger about, but the truth is it is more contagious. So it's gonna spread very rapidly. So if you are at one of those 10% of vaccine failures that will still get infected, maybe not get very sick, or you're one of the, you know, one or two or 3%, whatever that will get very sick, then maybe you still wanna wear a mask. And nobody should shame you for doing that shit. No one should shame you for not doing that shit. Um. I feel so sorry for all the people who were injured by the jab. Um, Jack Sell. I'm gonna let that comment go because. Um, Mary Barron, 100 stars, thank you. Um, by the way, restricting the comments to only subscribers on YouTube has really cleaned up the comment section, um, as far as I can tell. Um, let's see, why was coronavirus simulated at the Cladex simulation. Then the first case of virus was found at the military. Okay, I don't know what that's about. Um, Powwow says, hello doc, could you talk about these uh, so-called long-term effects? I'm hearing the argument that you can't replicate, uh, you can't replicate time in a lab. So the truth is there's not even a de novo good explanation for why these vaccines would have long-term effects. Like I've not heard a compelling reason. And I've listened to Malone and I've listened to all these guys, all right? They don't incorporate into human DNA. The spike protein is degraded, no matter where it is. And your immune response 
it's as if you were exposed to coronavirus. So you have the choice, get this thing, which we we cannot really figure out why it would cause long-term effects. Now, it doesn't mean it, it won't. It doesn't mean it can't. Anything's possible. You can't take that off the table, right? But what are the effects of wild-type infection with coronavirus? So you have to make the best decision you can based on your risk profile. That's why Vinay and I say, it's not cut and dry that you vaccinate kids. They're low risk for coronavirus, which means any side effect, any complication they have is, is out of proportion to the benefit they're getting. So this is crucial, you guys. Watch that episode on myocarditis and vaccines that I put out yesterday. Um, it's on all the platforms. Um, let's see, there was some other stuff I was gonna talk about. Uh, oh, no, that's most of it. The other thing is like this threat of non-vaccinated people. Like, I don't care about non-vaccinated people. I really don't. Like if, you, if, you, if you've had all the information and you've been persuaded at and you still don't wanna get the vaccine, that's fine with me. That's, that should be fine with everybody, you know, because then you made your risk benefit analysis. I disagree most likely depending on your situation, but if you've been like vaccinated, hang on, this thing's bothering me. If you've been vaccinated, if you've been infected with COVID before, you know, they'll say, oh, natural immunity is not a thing with Delta variant. Really show me that data. Really show me strong data that natural immunity is not gonna work well for severe disease or hospitalization because that's what we care about. So that may be a compelling reason. Maybe you don't wanna get, maybe you just want one dose. Maybe kids should only get one dose. It's like still over 90% effective, even against Delta. So that gray area is totally there. And I don't think we should be shaming people anymore. Just give them the best data that we have and have the conversation in good faith. Carissa Davis, what's up, girl? I can't believe you said that with a straight face. There's many things that I can say with a straight face that I shouldn't. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you, Christine. That's kind of you. Um, it's not restricted for just subscribers, Pam. No, not supporters, Pam, just YouTube subscribers. Is it still, is it not? Because some people subscribe to me that have some pretty interesting views, but I don't know, maybe it didn't work. I set the parameters on YouTube. It's it's not true, sorry, it's not true on Facebook because you're on Facebook. Facebook, I, I have that option, but I actually want the comments to go because if I just left it just for supporters, it would get, a, it'd be a, it'd actually probably be better. Next time I'm gonna do that. <laughs> that way people have to sign up for five bucks a month to leave a comment. Oh my God, that's cringy. I don't wanna do that. Um, I wanna actually get the message out. How do we keep our kids under 12 safe? Victoria, victory. All right. Two ways to think about this. Kids under 12 with no other conditions, not obese, don't have other pre-existing conditions that put them at risk for coronavirus. They are kept safe just by being alive for the most part. They could get coronavirus, but they're not likely gonna get very sick. They could get this um, sort of idiopathic MISC syndrome, about 4,000 cases of that or so, roughly. I think we'll have to confirm that. Um, but even that, you know, and it can be serious, but generally it's not. RSV, for example, respiratory syncytial virus kills up to 500 kids every year, young kids under five. And almost nobody asks the question, how can we keep our children safe from RSV? And yet that's a yearly event. And in fact, that was another thing I wanna talk about. It's surging now out of season in the South. So kids are getting RSV, they're filling up the ERs. And why is that? Well, we don't know, but something has been disrupted by 
using masks, then not using masks, opening up, closing, travel opening, coronavirus waning a bit. You know, there's a it's a complex dynamic, but now kids are showing up with this. So how do we keep our kids under 12 safe? If they are um, at risk, then they probably need to mask up, meaning they have those other coexisting conditions. At some point, they're gonna talk about vaccine for those kids. I, I wanna see real good data on that because, but let's say, forget about vaccine for a second, probably mask up, wash hands, that sort of thing, if they're at high risk. Otherwise, I would just go with whatever community guidelines are. That's what I, would, that's what I do for my daughter. So my nine-year-old, not at high risk, can't be vaccinated, goes to a ninja camp. They're told to wear masks, so they do, but the mask gets sweaty, you know it's not working. I'm not worried. If she, if she were to uh, contract coronavirus, I would be bummed and I would worry about her then, but I know statistically that the chances of something bad happening to her are very small. In fact, a lot of the data we have on kids is fucked up data because they had coronavirus, but they had a lot of other stuff too that CDC didn't drill into. So they might've been admitted for something different and then they tested positive for coronavirus. So the hospitalizations of kids, deaths of kids with coronavirus, it's not clear coronavirus was the prime cause. Um, so I think we've, we've really generated a lot of fear um, around kids, which is not necessarily warranted. Um, oh, this is something I wanna talk about real quick. Wendy Greenfield, ivermectin is an excellent prophylactic. I know many people who have taken it, it works. Let's talk about that. So this is where earlier I was ranting about doctors and what idiots we are sometimes. We also rely on anecdote. We also rely on clinical experience. Well, it turns out most people get better from coronavirus. Even most 70 year olds actually statistically will recover from coronavirus. They just have a much higher chance of than, than a young person of getting hospitalized, dying, et cetera. So when you say ivermectin works, well, if you're kind of sharp enough, well enough, you get ivermectin, like who's to say that that worked? You can't outside of, and you can't say it from an observational trial because they're full of confounders, as Vinaya and I said, you have to do a well-designed, properly powered, randomized control trial to show real benefit of that. So you can have stories everywhere and you can take it. It's pretty low risk thing. But for public health officials to advocate it, well, that's just bad. That's bad medicine and bad science because we've been burned again and again and again and again, right? And I'm not just talking about hydroxychloroquine, right? And the whole thing's been pretty tribalized too. Like you're either, you know, an ivermectin heterodox thinker or you're a mainstream shill sold out to big pharma. It's horseshit. Um, it's done with good intent, I think, the ivermectin side, but it's wrong. Uh, re, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm saying the way there's the, the, the position they're advocating from is wrong. Do the, and they're they're being done the randomized trials. Um, retail alchemist, I like that. You're full metal retail alchemist. Um, what if I'm vaccinated but stuck in a closed space for uh, eight hours with unvaccinated coworkers? Am I being overly cautious staying in an N95 when I'm next to them, considering the length of time? It really depends on what your other risk factors are, right? So you have to make a decision based on you. If you're a younger person without risk factors and some vaccinated person gives you a viral inoculum and you're vaccinated, some unvaccinated person gives you a viral inoculum and you're vaccinated, your chances of getting very sick are quite small. So what's the trade-off for you? Stuck all day in a sweaty N95. If you don't mind that, then wear the N95. If you mind that, then you have to do the risk calculation that way. It's nuanced. It isn't a black or white answer. And we do it with incomplete data. 
So we don't always have the data and that uncertainty kills people. It really upsets people. But we, if you can't live with uncertainty, you cannot be in medicine. You know, it really is very hard to practice because a lot of what we do is based on incomplete sort of, you know, the best Bayesian analysis we can do at the time with the data we have. And then when we get new data, we update and, and reevaluate. So, cause it may be retail alchemist that new data comes out and says, you're not safe, but I haven't seen it yet. You know, if you look at what's happening you know, Israel, Great Britain, where some vaccinated people are getting infected, generally it's, it's per the statistics of what we would expect the vaccine failure to be. And even then it tends to be people at high risk who are dying, right? Not, not people who are at low risk. Um, man, I gotta go in a second or in a couple minutes, but let me see. Man, we got a lot of viewers though. Let's just keep going for now until my wife texts me and wants me to bring the lunch I picked up home. Um, Love, peace, and harmony, great name. How about DMT in the thought of therapy? So DMT is one of the, probably the, one of the most powerful psychedelic compounds around. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan and these other guys talk about this a lot. There's a lot been written and explained about it. Um, the, the utility of powerful psychedelics is, and I'm gonna editorialize for a second, just from my own experience and from my understanding of this and from, you know, everything from reading Michael Pollan's book to actually experiencing some of these things. If, if, if you consider your normal waking state as kind of this, let's just pretend it's all energy, right? And you're in a particular contracted dense type of pattern. These med medicines launch you out of that and expand you, can expand you infinitely and openly so that you're open to unconscious material, you're open to old traumas, in a way that is non-resistant. You're open to you know, the nature of what you actually are, which is not all this, it's actually And uh, that can be profoundly therapeutic. It can also be profoundly destabilizing. It can be terrifying. The stuff that comes up if you don't have proper support, if not integrated, can be very harmful, the, the classic bad trip. But on balance, I think these are powerful potential therapeutics with the right guidance study and um, understanding will help humanity. So that's my answer to that. And I've done a video on this, you know, why your doctor should try psychedelics. Um, what's for lunch, Robert Simpson? I went to a bakery in San Mateo called Backhouse, which is really good. It's spelled H-A-U-S, always a big line out there. And they have um, these everything croissants that are stuffed with cream cheese and have these really complex exterior with fennel seeds and all kinds of stuff. And my kids love those. And then I got a lemon polenta loaf of bread that I usually have with some olive oil. And that's my, that can be a meal for me sometimes. So I like to mix it up. So different things like that. Um, again, not low carb, but complex. Like I don't eat the croissant, that's for my kids, but the, the, porridge loaf is actually whole wheat and quite complex. So it's slow absorption of sugars. And I find I actually don't gain weight when I eat large amounts of that because it's so volume, it's so big in volume, it fills you up and you can have it with like some anchovies or something. You get some omega you know, threes and some good fats or an avocado, a bunch of olive oil, uh, some balsamic vinegar, and that's like a meal and it's really good. Um, okay. Uh, I gotta go. I, I do gotta go. <laughs> this has been a lot of fun. Um, thank
Thank you for everyone who sent stars on Facebook, who did Super Chat. Uh, I'm gonna answer one last Super Chat on, uh, on YouTube. Stephanie Clark, two kids under 12, one with small lungs from prematurity, safe around family who have already had the virus or not worth the risk. Under 12, small lungs. You really gotta talk to your pediatrician because I don't know beyond the descriptor of small lungs if they have other predisposing uh, issues. Those other folks have had COVID, which means they're lower risk for reinfection, not zero, but lower risk. So it's a complex nuanced thing and it depends on how important it is for you to also hang out with them. What are the risks and benefits of the social interaction? So uh, beyond that, I can't say for you. It's a very personal decision, you know? Um, all right. You guys are the best. Should we, we'll, we'll, I'm gonna go out with just like a Sunday thing, all right? Because it's really easy to get wrapped up in, in, in all, all this sauce. You know, I get myself fired up on these shows sometimes because it is, it's actually very cathartic to let some of that energy come out, you know, when I'm ranting about whatever it is and it's authentic. It's what I, it's what I believe and who I am. And sometimes I regret it. Sometimes I look back at the video, like a live like this and I'm like, I dropped a lot of F-bombs. No one's gonna wanna watch this. The message is gonna be buried in the F-bombs. But then I get messages from people who say, thank you for the F-bombs. So you just have to be you. And I think that's the sort of parting meditation for the day. An infinite amount, an infinite percentage of our suffering comes from resisting what it is we actually are. Resisting life as it is. You know, the sights and the sounds and the smells and the ego and the emotion and the relationships and the stress. We resist all of it, <laughs> most of us. We do not sit in the flow pocket of life and let life unfold as someone who's on a ride. Instead, we think we're in charge of the ride. We try constantly to steer that roller coaster in a way where maybe there's a few less dips when we're not ready for it, or I really don't like the rickety sound of these tracks over here. I'm gonna try to switch the track to a more mellow roller coaster, resist this, or, or to the contrary, seek it out. Like, I want more distraction in the form of extreme stuff there. And, whether it's drugs or alcohol or, or sex or you know internet addiction or f addiction to influence, whatever it is, the common denominator is we resist what is. We put distance between what is happening now, the good, the bad, the ugly. We label it, that's step one in putting distance. We wrap it in belief, that's step two in putting distance. And then we project ourselves out of it to escape, to either plan how we're gonna get out of this or remember a way in the past that we got out of this. And that's step three. <laughs> and then we're lost. We're back in suffering. So an exercise that you can do just any time is just remember that. Just remember that that's something we do. We're wired to do it. It's not our fault. It's just how we are as humans from the minute we're born. We're faced with a world that is so overwhelming and it's just, it's so much. Look, look at a baby when it's looking around. It's just like, oh shit. <laughs> and so the human mind evolved to kind of, in a way, keep us safe from all this instead of just going, mm, but this is how it is. 
you can still act in the world. You can still act. And that leads you then to acting from a place of authenticity that is so you that when you get in the pocket of doing that, you can't imagine being anyone but you. That's radical acceptance. Like no, nothing to heal, nothing to fix, nothing to relive, nothing to desensitize to, just this. So that's it. All right, guys. I really, really do love you. I do. I say that like seems offhand, but I do. Um, and until next time, please leave a comment. If you like the video, share it. The usual. The calls to actions are dumb. And honestly, I feel like what is going to happen is going to happen. So do what you think feels right. All right. I love you. Until next time. Now I got to figure out how to end the, the podcast. And this is where it gets very confusing because each platform is different. Bye. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.